I was sleeping around, just a horny young gay Having lots of sex in lots of careless ways Then I got the word from my drag mother Come on, little miss Now we work with ending HIV Supporting and informing our community Serving up a podcast celebration Across the generations And that is why we're here <laughs> This is a sexual transmission We're stiff And plays Hi, I'm Blaze. Hi, I'm Steph. Welcome to Sexual Transmission, a sex-positive podcast for the people, queer people specifically. This is our first episode where you'll find out who we are, how we met, we talk about sexual awakenings, first times, and answer some of your questions. Let's get on with the show. Hi everyone, I'm Blaze. I'm the Volunteer and Events Officer at the New Zealand AIDS Foundation. I've been with NZAF now for about 10 months, I think it is, and um, it's been quite the journey to get here. I'm here with my drag mother. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Steph. I'm Blaze's drag mother. And just a little aside for what a drag mother actually is, Blaze and I worked on a musical a couple of years ago, and um, the first time that he ever got in drag was at my hand. So I did his makeup, I did his wigs, um, I gave him all kinds of tips on tucking and those (laughs) kinds of things. (laughs) And therefore therefore that makes me the drag mother. That's why we um, refer to each other as mother and daughter. But apart from that, we're friends as well. Exactly. And Steph's taught me how to cook, how to clean, (laughs) how to look after myself in general. (laughs) We do little gay culture information tutorials. Mm, Exactly. (laughs) We watch documentaries and films and yes, I guess it's like, it's a family that's in the gay world, which is um, a really important family because it's the one that we choose. Exactly. And I couldn't ask for a better chosen family, that's for sure. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it was through that musical that Steph introduced me to NZAF as a volunteer. Steph organized this gorgeous collection that year for the World AIDS Day collection. And that was the first time I had encountered the foundation and it kind of lit a fire in my soul for the work that the NZAF did. And I guess from there, subsequent years, there was more more volunteering done and more collection done. And then there was a show written. I, I wrote a show with uh, my friend Jason Smith uh, called Everybody Interesting is Gay, and we performed that and then uh, raised some more money for the foundation. And a few months later, I got a job at the foundation. <laughs> and here I am today in your ears. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Going back to that show, actually, when... Um, The show was kind of touching on um, the AIDS crisis in the 80s and there was one change during the show where I was standing on the side of the stage and it was kind of, it was a slower song and during the song on all of the screens around the stage, they flashed up photos of people who died of AIDS in the 80s. And so it was um, it was a really poignant moment in the show, but it was also a moment that just reminded me of lots of experiences from my youth and from my past and, and really made me think about 
the people who come before us and, and how a lot of them didn't survive and, you know, the many, many people that we lost during the AIDS crisis. And as it happened, the show was on during the time of World AIDS Day. So I decided that, um, you know, it would be great for us to do some bucket collecting on the street, but also to, to do one of the shows as a special tribute to the AIDS crisis. So we got a whole bunch of people. We borrowed the enormous rainbow flag oh, from the right. AIDS Foundation. And, um, and we did a gay parade, basically, through down the stage and, and through the street outside of the theatre. So, yeah, it was, it was a really beautiful moment. And, um, and it was kind of a nice thing to include in the run of the show because the show was, you know, really part of that experience. Absolutely. So. Yeah. It painted a picture, I guess, of a microcosm of what that time and place was like, I suppose. Absolutely, um, yeah. And and I know that the writers of the show um, had personal experience of, you know, losing a lot of people mm. during the crisis. Mm. So it was something that was really close to them. And, you know, Lucy Lawless, the star of the show, you know, it was a very special message that she was happy to be a part of as well. Yeah. So And amazing yeah. that someone like her was able to use her platform, essentially, to bring about that messaging to perhaps a newer audience, perhaps a, a group of people who didn't know about that and that as a young person myself was incredibly informative mm. you know there was su- there was kind of a limited perspective that i had on it at the time and doing that show for 4 months every night you got to experience this world mm. for 6 nights a week <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it was very special. Was that your first kind of um, major education or, or knowledge that you got totally, about yeah. the AIDS so crisis? Before that, I had only really explored it when I was studying at drama school through the play Angels in America by Tony mm. Kushner. And I was so scared. I was so scared because I didn't, I didn't know anything. And, you know, I was raised by a generation of people who were my age during the time of the epidemic or the height of the epidemic, I should say. And that kind of fear-based messaging from the 90s is what I was raised with. And so I like to call it intergenerational internalized serophobia. (laughs) 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 And it took a long time and it was, that was, it was the moments in that show and kind of living those experiences and, and, Living by proxy, I guess, those experiences through that show was my first kind of full immersion mm. education. Yeah, absolutely. It. Really, really special. Mm, mm, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I guess um, the first person that I came across who, who had AIDS was um, a teacher at, at my school. Her brother was living in Paris and he came back, basically came back to New Zealand to die. And I was, I was pretty good friends with this teacher. She was the art teacher, a really fab woman. And she used to, we used to kind of party with her. She was like a younger teacher. Um, and her, her brother came back and, and lived with her. He was very sick. And it was around the time of um, the homosexual law reform uh, marches. So, you know, there was a lot of awareness of, about the gay world. And I was obviously just coming out myself mm-hmm to myself and then also starting to come out to people who are close to me. But that was, that was my first experience was, you know, a person who had been away and had been living a fabulous life and, you know, the most beautiful romantic city in the world and, you know, had contracted AIDS, his partner had died and he had no one else there. So he had to come home. So basically his life as he thought it was going to be, 
um, was ended very quickly as a result of the disease. And, mm. you know, he, he came back and lived in small town New Zealand and died very quietly at home with his family, which I guess is a beautiful thing. But it's also disturbing to think that at that time, what you thought your life was going to be wasn't necessarily what it was going to end up being. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, that was that was my first experience, and and it was really beautiful because he was a very open person who you know spoke a lot about his experience and was also you know very frightened and very open to sharing the fact that you had to be careful. You know, we were getting all kinds of um, terrible scare news from the media and mm-hmm. from the government. Mm-hmm. But to get some firsthand news from someone like that who basically said, you can protect yourself, which wasn't the message we were necessarily getting from the government, from the media, from, you know, all kinds of right-wing groups that were calling it the gay disease. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it was creating a lot of fear in our community, but then also in amongst young people who were thinking about coming out. It was like, what am I going to come out and I'm going to be branded a part of this community that's spreading a dangerous disease. So, you know, there was all kinds of misinformation and and fear-mongering that was happening. So actually really amazing to have an experience with someone who was, you know, going through living with and and about to die from this disease. And, um, that's and, Being and it's so incredible that that has led us, you know, if we think forward 30, 40 years, that that's what's led us to this point in our lives. Where we're able to to honour those people, to honour those lives of those people in everything we do. I mean, particularly with the work we do at the foundation, the developments that we've been able to make through treatment for people living with HIV mm. and PrEP. And obviously everybody knows about condoms. Well, mm. we hope everybody would know about condoms. <laughs> um, but we are able to honour those people through adhering to our treatment, you know, mm. taking taking our PrEP, taking our medication, using our condoms. Taking control of the and taking, Exactly, taking yeah. control. Because of those people, we have these tools that we can use mm. to take control. Mm. And I think that's really Absolutely, spectacular. Yeah. I mean, because seriously, back in those days... The message from, you know, from America, from the UK, it was bleak, you mm. know, and mm. and there was all kinds of, um, I think, all kinds of legislation that was put in place to try and silence gay people and put gay people in their place, um, especially in the UK. Yeah. And it really set back the fight against AIDS quite majorly. And, you know, if, if you think about, make a comparison to COVID-19, where the world is putting all of their resources behind creating a vaccine for this disease, whereas um, when the AIDS crisis was happening, it was people who were allies or people who are part of the gay community who were raising money to try and find treatment, to find a cure. A lot of that money wasn't necessarily coming from the governments. Mm. It was first coming from these, you know, private charities and, and people who, believed or or who were frightened for their own lives. So mm. it was an amazingly motivated community that has created this incredible thing that we have now, which is worldwide AIDS foundations who are doing amazing work, not only in Western countries, but in emerging nations who's, mm. you know, they're still having very, very um, serious problems with, yeah. with HIV yeah, and exactly. AIDS. And still, I guess finding their way mm. with with the issue. Mm. The, mm. On that note, this podcast is going to be exploring some of these conversations around 
how we can protect ourselves, how we can stay safe. You know, we'll be talking through what the AIDS epidemic was and how that translates to a modern day context and what HIV is in 2020. We'll talk about STIs, we'll talk about sexuality and sex and demystify sex, I guess, for you. I guess in terms of our goal at ending HIV, we're looking to end new HIV transmissions in Aotearoa by 2025. And in order to do that, people need to stay safe. So using condoms, taking PrEP, taking their medication if they're living with HIV, testing often if you're highly sexualized, going to, that's, you know, having a lot of sex. Um, get, highly, getting, sexualized. <laughs> highly sexualized. Highly <laughs> um, sexualized. Sounds like something that you do to animals to, <laughs> to breed them. It's like a breeding program. Exactly. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, so if you are having a lot of sex, uh, testing often, testing every three months or at least twice a year for those who are not having as much sex and obviously treating early. So if we are having HIV acquisition to ensuring that people access treatment early so that they can reach undetectable status. And above all that, another one of our main goals at the New Zealand AIDS Foundation is to end HIV stigma. This is a big barrier that people living with HIV face on a daily basis. And it can be simple things like changing how you talk about HIV, educating yourself, Ignorance is not bliss in this arena. Educate yourself, know the facts, know the science, and uh, hopefully you'll learn something through this podcast to help you hold these conversations in your daily lives with people to help us end HIV stigma. And we want to hear from you, our wonderful listeners. So if you have any comments or any questions, you can respond to our Facebook and Instagram stories when we ask for questions. Uh, you could DM us on the Ending HIV NZ Instagram. All of this, these links will um, will be in the bio. We really want to hear from you. And if, if there's anything that you want to hear more about or um, if you have a particular question or maybe if you want to hear from a certain type of guest because we're going to be having guests in the upcoming episodes as well. So, yeah. Slide um, into those DMs. <laughs> In this next segment, we are going to be talking about some of our sexual experiences from when we were when we were young and specifically underage. If this is something that might be triggering to you, perhaps you want to skip this section. Or if something comes up while you're listening, we're going to include some resources down below for you to get a little extra support. So I was reading this article the other day that had this report inside of it. And the title of the report was The Drawing of Desire. This kind of wow. very kind of erotic <laughs> sounding Quite language. dramatic as well. Quite dramatic. <laughs> um, but essentially it was all about sexual awakening and people losing their virginity and at what ages and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And it reported that the age of sexual awakening for gay people was about 13 Point eight, so just under 14 years, okay. and then that they would lose their virginity just before the age of 18, which was very interesting. Before the age of 18? Wow. Yeah, before the age of 18. That um, sounds really late. 
Well, I mean, <laughs> I, mean <laughs> I mean, for me, it was at the opposite ends of the spectrum. I was kind of, I had my Having sexual awakening. Having sex before your awakening. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, there was a group that had uh, their awakening after their first sexual encounter. Oh, wow. And that was people who, I guess, identified in, in inverted commas, identified as Republican because <laughs> it was an American study. Um, wow. And people who identified as Republican had their sexual awakening after their first instance of uh, their oh, first like disturbing <laughs> so someone played around with them and then they thought what, what just happened what, what just happened? yeah exactly what is what is this so oh, yeah Lord. I guess we know the shape of that party um, <laughs> <laughs> was, um, that was an average or that was like a, a general that was like I, I would say it was a general a Oof. kind of a general wash yeah okay. um, but let's move on let's that. move on let's move <laughs> swiftly on disturbing <laughs> um, but <laughs> My first instinct when I was reading it was like, how do you document something that is so personal to somebody? You know, how how do you quantify such a nuanced experience? You know, it's for every single human being on the planet, they will have a different relationship with sex, a different relationship with their own sexual awakening, and I guess when they lost their virginity. And yeah, I thought that was really interesting how they were able to actually create these demographics and then Mm. kind of go, oh, this is the average age that this occurs. I guess what they would have done is is ask the simple question, like, do you remember when you first felt sexually aware, Mm. where you had sexual urges or sexual feelings? Like, I mean, I, I know for me that was very young. Like, I would say maybe the age of 11 or 12, I was um, the same. Yeah. Yeah. And then probably my first se- sexual experience was probably actually around that time. Mm. I don't think I waited around or thought about it too long. It probably almost was a symbiotic thing. You know, I, I would have, I guess I probably had my sexual awakening when I had my, my first sexual experience, I mm. imagine. I think those two kind of came at, at, at hand the same time. Hand. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of opposite, I think. I had my sexual awakening around the age of 12. Are you coming out as a Republican right now? <laughs> <laughs> yes, actually, yeah. I've actually only just had my sexual awakening. <laughs> no, I would say my, my sexual awakening came at around the age of 12. My older brother used to be a football player, and he had these... We used to billet some of his teammates and one afternoon I went out, you know, innocently going to go and jump on the trampoline in the backyard and I walk out into the backyard and what do I see but a shirtless 18-year-old football player glistening in the sun with his washboard abs, like something you'd see in a Disney movie (laughs) or maybe not a Disney movie, I don't know. Just something that you'd see on a softcore porn on movie. On a softcore porn movie, exactly. <laughs> like if we're looking at like Bellamy or I don't know, <laughs> maybe maybe something not so softcore. Um, but it was there, and I kind of took a moment and ingested it, and that image is still ingrained in my mind oh, wow. to this day. I can still see him lying there, glistening, and yeah, I think that was the first time. But then, I guess the loss of virginity didn't happen for another seven years. It wasn't until I was actually at university, my second year at university, that I lost my virginity. And I think that was because it was an access thing. The environment that I was in as a younger person didn't feel conducive to making those kind of decisions. The urges were certainly there. Mm. You know, they were 
quite hard to ignore, actually. You know, I didn't come out until I'd actually lost my virginity to a man. And that kind of When you say lose your, your virginity, do you mean just having an experience with a man or having like... Having, yeah, having an experience with a man. So just like yeah. kissing and playing around. Yeah, and kissing yeah. and playing around. And then, yeah, it was quite soon after came full penetration. Yeah. Woohoo. Spilling all the tea, right? <laughs> Woohoo. Tick, tick, tick. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I mean, my experience was, I guess it was kind of, as I said, it was pretty symbiotic in terms of feeling sexual urges and then something actually happening as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it was with, um, with a much older man. But it was um, it certainly it wasn't an unwelcome thing. Once the the floodgates were open, the the flood was certainly raging. <laughs> <laughs> the dam was full. <laughs> <laughs> the dam was full and it had a leak. <laughs> she sprung a leak. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it it does create an unusual version of first times most of what was happening was um, was happening with married men who weren't necessarily um, trying to initiate me into the gay world they were just trying to get off with a person mm. so yeah there were all kinds of things that possibly weren't the best introductions anal sex does really hurt if you don't use lubricant certainly does <laughs> it can get very messy if you don't douche mm-hmm. um, and these mm-hmm. were things that you know in my mid-1980s life in small town New Zealand certainly weren't being taught in school. Oh, absolutely. Gosh, I don't even think they're being taught in school in 2020. Let's advocate for some more homosexual sex education, please. Or just diverse sex education in general, thank you very much. But yeah, and I mean, as well, it was was certainly pre-internet. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I was kind of just finding my way and often difficult situations that Went my finest. Can't hour. just go to Auntie Google. No, and say, no, What's exactly. this? Does this bit go there? What's the <laughs> the the wraparound care? Shall we call it? Um, and I guess you know, in in your case, in more recent times, there was a lot more information available to mm. you, and you know, you could make more informed choices. Totally, it was still quite fumbly, should I say? It was uh, you know, the not necessarily knowing. You know the best way to do, sure. If if you have to do, sure. How do you do, sure? What are the safest practices when hooking up? You know, and I would say in the early days of you know, I actively sought. By the time I lost my virginity, I was just like, come on, you know, talking about the dam, the dam. I was banging down the dam with my sledgehammer. <laughs> I was ready for it for that flood to come gushing down the valley. Uh, <laughs> And I, we sound like a couple of old piss queens. I know exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about Normali- water sports. And exactly. Dams bursting. Normalized piss play. We're very kink friendly around here. <laughs> <laughs> and um, but you know, I would I would hop on the apps and I would encounter some of these guys who you know who knew if they were real people or not. And you know, I met some of them in some very questionable places. Mm. Um, and you know, I didn't learn about notifying people where I was because I was still doing this before I came out. So people, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure people knew, but I was not at that place where I could openly talk about that with people and I didn't want them to know where I was in case Mm. that was going to out me. And so, yeah, it it was a very tricky time navigating personal safety. Mm, Um, But definitely, I guess, I guess what you call kind of safe sex messaging was Definitely, I mean that has a, has had a forty year evolution, mm-hmm. particularly for gay and bisexual people. And 
the use of condoms. And by at that point, obviously, PrEP wasn't readily available in New Zealand. But mm. um, yeah, so there was a lot of that, but definitely questionable places that, mm. that the partners were met. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Um Obviously, as I'm a little older than you, there were no apps, and mm-hmm. and my version of the apps were um, were little messages left on public toilet doors. So, I guess that was the app of what um, would they say? If you're looking for cock fun uh, meet here at eleven a.m. on said date. Oh, wow! Sometimes, um, actually, no. I was thinking of more recent times that people would sometimes leave their phone numbers, but back in the in the mid eighties, there were no mobile phones oh, to be of course. leaving numbers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, people would leave messages. People would also just be there, just hanging out. Mm. Sometimes, you know, you'd go into a place like that, and there'd be someone there, and they'd be, you know, giving you the little look, and and next thing you know, you're um, you're off. Nothing like a bit of hanky code, <laughs> hanky code at the urinal, and yeah, tie happy. Yeah. And you're off to um, maybe to the little motel room because there are traveling salesmen passing through town. So go to some shady motel room with a with an older gentleman. You could make a film out of this. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Seen a few films similar <laughs> over yeah, the I years. I think I might have watched one on <laughs> Pornhub last week. <laughs> and hopefully nobody made a film of those days. <laughs> Exactly, yeah. It's all scripted now. All of the actors are over age of consent. (laughs) They're a disclosure after disclosure after disclosure. Absolutely. Um, So on the subject of sexual awakenings, we Mm. actually asked our listenership to send us in a few of their own um, sexual awakenings. And I thought I'd read them to you, Steph. um, Some of them have said what ages they were. Some of them have, have just kind of said who these people were that instigated the sexual awakening. So we'll start... Oh, gosh, there's some real doozies here. Oh, this is quite cute. One person just says, 12, just developed a crush on a classmate. Nothing crazy. (laughs) It's quite demure, I guess. (laughs) So that was an awakening, obviously, or did it follow through to an experience? I mean, should we we reply, be like, did you you follow through? Is this awakening or experience? Yeah, let us know. Awakening or experience? <laughs> Hashtag awakened experience. <laughs> Are we getting this trending? I don't know. Um, there's another one here that says Dan Carter and jockeys. You know, when you go to farmers and Dan Carter used to be on the jockey, I can kind of relate to that. This is definitely awakening. Yeah, that's that's definitely an awakening. <laughs> I don't think that would have been an experience. <laughs> Tim Curry as Frankenfurter in the Rocky oh, Horror Show. Wow. Kinky. Yeah, I like very very kinky, yeah. Very, um, like, translates through, you know, that kind of sex-positive image mm. kind of would have translated through to somebody. At a, he was at very sexy, though. Oh, extraordinarily I mean, you know, so. Yeah. yeah. He was, you know, he was he was wearing lingerie and he was do, doing this kind of femme kink. Mm. But, I mean, it was it was kind of masculine as well. Oh, highly masculine. he was masculine. in control. It was, yeah, it was a really, that's an interesting character study. Um, who else have we got here? Teen Simba from The Lion King. Wow. Very interesting. I think the post we put up actually featured a picture of Simba. So, you know, bit of furry fun is Mm. is not amiss here. I need to have a look at what Teen Simba looks like. Teen Simba. He was quite handsome. I don't know who voiced him. Was it Matthew Broderick? No, he was voiced by Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Oh, he was the one from Home and Away. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. Jonathan Taylor Thomas from Home Improvement. Oh, Teenage Simba again. 
Teenage Simba was quite... Oh, yeah, he's cute. Yeah, very cute, right? That's actually why I put him, because I know it's a really common one. Ah, I mean the jawline, yeah. for one. And Jonathan T- Taylor Thomas was such an icon in the mm. 90s. Like, I think he was a lot of people's sexual awakening. Yeah. Um, yeah, I totally I get that yeah. one. I mean, I would never have thought a cartoon, but, yeah, he's got cool hair. He's, yeah, he's this, hot. This person also said Tinkerbell. I think that was a different kind of awakening for me. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Say that was, might have been more of just my fabulous awakening or something. <laughs> Tinkerbell's cute, though. She's I so can totally cute. see that. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, These here's, cartoons, though, this is really interesting. Right. And, and this was at age eight. So we're talking, you know, prior wow. to that, that 12, 13 mark, mm, you know. Mm, mm. And this is something I've actually heard a lot about, like just from random chats with friends, is that people, you know, six six or eight mm-hmm. would have had some inkling of some feeling. But what are the, what are the things that they're watching? Cartoons mm-hmm. and, and, and things like that. Another one? Disney's I actually Hercules? remember. Hold on. I'm just I'm getting a, um, an awakening remembrance. I remember Burt Reynolds. It was like a really, really short little moment in a film where he's coming out of the shower, really wet, with a towel wrapped around him. And then the, in the next frame, he's dressed. But it was one moment... Burt Reynolds, big moustache, hairy chest, really like super hyper-masculine. That would have been on TV, like maybe BJ and the Bear or, you know, one of those kind of films. It was not not an adult film at all, Mm. but there's a moment where he just happens Mm. to be doing that, I guess, a little little fricassee for the mums. But um, I, yeah, I bought right into that. I mean, I must have been... Maybe eight or nine, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Mm. There was something in the article actually that spoke to what was the trigger for that awakening, and the majority was a movie or an actor or a performance. I mean, Burt Reynolds, yummy. I mean, mm. I remember watching Victor Victoria for the first time, and I, you know, I was <laughs> well into my early adulthood, and just thinking, oh gosh, that handlebar moustache, mm-hmm. and there's this scene where he's cuddling Julie Andrews in bed. <laughs> And I think among all of the times I've wanted to be Julie Andrews, that was definitely <laughs> one of them. <laughs> um, who else have we got here? Sorry, we digress. Oh, this is cute. Probably the fact I was obsessed with the Top Twins at age three was a giveaway. Ah, I'm loving that. I'm loving that. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that's a really common one, actually. Oh, absolutely. For I, a lot of people. Um, I toured with the Top Twins. They did a TV show that was, it was based on the, all of the characters that they created, the Camp Mom mm-hmm, and the, mm-hmm. the Kens and all those different people. And we we toured around all of these different kind of rural, like farm days. They had like a sheep shearing contest. There was a, an A&P show. What else was there? There were a whole bunch of different things. And we went to these places. They had their little caravan with the gingham curtains. Oh, my gosh. Um <laughs> I guess this is in the early 90s. And we filmed a TV show that showed on, on the telly. And I remember there would quite often be moments where there'd be like a little tomboy who was there, you know, checking them out. They never checked them out when they were the Kens, when they were dressed up as men. Um, maybe even not so much when they were the camp mothers, but when they were wearing their little kind of country girl hat, like those little funny hats with the gingham skirts yeah. that they used to keep pulling up. <laughs> yeah. You'd see these little these little girls and they would, you know, they would just be completely entranced. Incredible. Um, they were out, mm. but they certainly weren't being flagrant with their sexuality. Yeah, yeah. But there's something, I guess, about 
a young person recognizing something that they feel inside in another person, in an adult. Mm, mm. Oh, I'm having another awakening remembrance. <laughs> it's like premonitions. <laughs> I remember, so we were going to visit some friends of my mom, and the oldest son was maybe 16 or 17, and I had a huge crush on him. And I remember we were going to the park. The parents were going to a coffee lounge. We got to the park, and I had this huge tantrum because I was so shy. I just I couldn't bear to be around him. It was just too much for me. He was too beautiful. Um, I had a tantrum, and I had to go to the coffee lounge. I couldn't be near him because it was just too overwhelming for me. Cut to 10 years later. At the staircase. No. There he was. And he was coming out at that point. Like he was a young man who was about to start coming out to his family. He was going off to university. He was about to start his gay life. And me as a you know, an eight-year-old kid, I saw something in him that yeah. I knew was taboo in some way. Mm, and mm. I knew I shouldn't be having those feelings. I didn't mm. want to be around it. I had a real reaction that I needed to mm. not be there. Mm. That's something that can kind of taint these first experiences yeah. as well. You know, you, you experience something, but you know that it's not the thing that you should be experiencing. And you know that you shouldn't be feeling these feelings. And it can cause some sort of, you know, negative responses as well as positive mm. ones. Mm. Um, and it can cause you to kind of hide away or to have a huge tantrum in the middle of the park and, <laughs> and say that you want to go and sit in the coffee lounge. How boring when you could be <laughs> hanging out with this gorgeous 18-year-old... Um, sexy gay boy. Exactly. <laughs> That's so interesting. That reminds me of an experience I actually recently had. Well, it was more of a reflection I recently had. I guess the first ever personification of gayness or queerness in my life was a teacher I had in primary school when I was eight. He was very good friends with my mum. And at the time, there was something I innately connected with. I didn't know what that was. And it was very kind of confronting because I hadn't kind of felt that way about a teacher before. I had been around teachers since I was born because my mum's a teacher. And I... Not this mum. Not this mum here. No, just for clarification. This is the one... Uh, yeah, we, we <laughs> The biological The mother. biological. <laughs> um, yeah, and then he left. And my mum my actually took over his job for the last part of his tenure. He went to go and work in the art world and in museums and things. Did he go or was he pushed? Oh no, he was definitely not pushed. He made the choice. But mm -hmm. thinking about the politics of the time, it could have been a very, very viable thing. Mm. Um, but he absolutely was not. Mm. And he went and has now had a thriving career. He um, actually moved to London and is on the curatorial staff of the Natural History Museum cool. in London. And so when I was last in London in 2017, I met up with him. Bearing in mind the last time I saw him, I was eight years old. You know, fast forward 16, 17 years, we're in this wine bar in a side street in Soho, just nattering like two old ladies. Amazing. And it was fabulous. And I just, it, yeah, it was a real moment of reflection kind of going, like connecting those two 
processes together, the mm. one that I had as an eight-year-old and the one that I was then experiencing as a 23-year-old. And did he recognize any gayness in you as a young person? He did told, he say? Yeah, he said, he told my mum that she had to have a bottle of champagne in the fridge for when I came out. <laughs> this is back when I was eight years old. Amazing. And my mum actually told me that when I came out to her. Wow. When I came out to mum, she said, oh, you know, he said when you come out that I had to have a bottle of champagne That's in the fridge. That's amazing. And I was like, well, you could have told me. You could have raised me gay. <laughs> might have been, been good. Um, but, you know, parents. <laughs> it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because um, I've got friends who have gay children who are very obviously gay. They're, you know, they're, mm. they're whole, through their whole childhood. And they made very definite decisions to wait until the child was ready because, yeah. you know, I, f I feel like that's something that you have to discover yourself. Um, the amazing thing about it was that they obviously knew, we all knew, mm. um, and we were very, very encouraging and mm. very supportive. Mm. And um, one particular child, he is, he's now in his early 20s, but he had the most beautiful support yeah. and the most beautiful knowledge that being gay was a great thing. He had great gay role models around him. And he I don't think he really ever even came out. Oh, that's so gorgeous. He didn't really need to. Yeah. It's just like, well, now I'm just doing this and I'm old enough yeah. to do this. And so this is what's happening. And He's my boyfriend. Yeah. You guys are, mind your business. Yeah. Like, what's it got to do with you? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, I've got a boyfriend. Oh, whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, how empowering. Yeah. That's really awesome. amazing. It's so, so beautiful to hear stories like that because it's not always the case. It certainly wasn't the case for me. No, exactly. Reading notes on toilet walls and going to, you know, diving my towels was <laughs> a very different <laughs> initiation into exactly. sex. When the, when the, when the sun is but a moment past the the North Pole, <laughs> something like that, the flag post. We did have clocks back in oh, those right, days. Okay, yeah. just, just making sure. <laughs> we weren't standing around the sundial in the, in the town centre. <laughs> <laughs> just waiting for that sun to pass by. I guess on that note, what would be some advice that you would give yourself if you could sit down your younger self and give yourself some advice for those first encounters, what would it be? What would be some kind of hot tips and tricks? I was pretty lucky. Like, it could have gone really, really horribly mm. wrong, but it never really did. Yeah. I feel like there was some sort of guardian angel watching over me. Hopefully she closed her eyes when we got down <laughs> to it. away, blocked her ears. <laughs> but no, I, I really do feel quite lucky. I mean, I guess that the one piece of advice that I would give is that this isn't all there is. You just need to carry on until you leave this tiny town, you know, very, very small town. The thankful thing about the small town was that it was um, a place where lots of people traveled through. So there were all kinds of people coming through all the time. It wasn't just the same old population year in, year out. So there were different people coming through, but I definitely felt trapped and I thought, is this all there is? So I guess to know that the first year that I moved to Auckland, I met a really amazing boyfriend and we were together. We were the same age. You know, it wasn't kind of all sexual experiences aren't going to be with old men, mm, mm. you know. I guess that would be the one thing, just to kind of know that that's coming and, and not feel as though you're trapped in this not ideal situation. Yeah, definitely. Probably some mechanics of sex as well. I mean, I don't think that, you know, heterosexual men who are um, sleeping around with young boys but on their wives are really probably the best 
teachers of gay sex? No, no, it's a specific no. skill set. <laughs> I don't think I was taught, you know, the, the real ways of sex until I started having sex with other gay people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I guess that's it, to know that there's beautiful things to come and don't feel too trapped. What about you? Yeah, I've just been thinking about this as we've been talking about it. And I think the number one thing I would tell myself is that sex is not a social currency. The way you trade in your social interactions is not to be molded or shaped by how you look mm. and what you have to offer a freshly waxed hole or a freshly trimmed bush of pubes or, <laughs> you know, cum gutter V-line in your abdominal section or, you know, from the early moments of my journey with sex, I was influenced by, I guess, what you call like modern social pressure or mm. the value of the aesthetic value of yourself and those boxes that people put you in, you know, little twink or, you know, mm. the burly jock or, you know, the the bears and things. And I think for a long because time... Because I know you've, you've often had um, messages from guys saying, you're really hot, but you're really yeah. femme. Yeah, As exactly. if there's something wrong with that. Exactly. And, and people quite often, I exist in my entirety mm. and I, you know... You can't pick pieces <clears throat> off and exactly. say, I like that bit, yeah. but if you just keep that other bit away from me yeah. because I'm not into that. And whatever you look like or who, whatever way you are is enough to be worthy of sexual experiences. Mm, absolutely. Um, and you don't have to, you know, like on a, a fader board, um, mm. you don't have to tune up or tune down various parts of yourself just to access sex. Mm, absolutely. You can be everything that you are, and that is sexually inherently valuable. Mm. That would be what I'd sit down, mm. young Blazel, and tell her. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I definitely experienced that later when you know when i started doing drag mm. and you know this was early 90s long before rupaul's drag race where mm. being a drag queen was cool yeah you would do drag and then you would clean it off mm. and you would hope that no one recognized you from being in drag because otherwise you wouldn't get laid yeah and you certainly wouldn't tell people if you met people casually for sex you wouldn't tell them that you were a drag queen yeah and often people would use it as some sort of um, way of putting you in your place. Um, you know, if you were out at a bar, out of drag, someone might whisper in, you know, the guy that you were checking out might whisper in their ear and say, oh, that one does drag. And then it would be like, oh, okay, well, I'm not into that. Even though they'd be perfectly attracted to you before they found that piece of information out. It is a funny thing. I think it's getting better. Oh, I mean, if I can, you know, I went on a date last year with a full face of drag makeup and went home and, well, bent him over the side of the bed. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that the rest was history. So I guess, yeah, that would be a testament to mm. um, the social changes or the, mm. the digression that society has made with their respect to drag. Mm. Um, but, you know, a boy in nail polish can sometimes be enough to receive a block on Grindr. Mm, um, mm. So, yeah, there is, I think there's still, there are still people out there who, um, who are femphobic, shall we say, or mm, mm. who um, have internalised homophobia that they can't reconcile with. Absolutely. Yeah. 
I think um, now might be a good time to offer our listeners to talk about their experiences. It'd be great to get some messages and replies from people, you know, about this very thing, you know, ranging from first time experiences through to, yeah, what, what it's like now, what people's experiences are whether it be people who do drag, do they have problems with getting laid? Or people who find drag queens repulsive. I mean, let's hear from them as well. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. You know, it's always interesting exactly. to hear both sides. Let's of, see who comes of out of the, the coin. woodwork. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Ending HIV. Speaking of first times, did you know that using a condom the first time you have sex is known to increase your condom use? That's why Ending HIV have created a condom fit kit for folks to explore which condom is their best fit. Order today at endinghiv.org.nz. So now we've reached the part in the episode where we hear from you, our amazing listeners, where you've sent in your questions and uh, we're going to answer them. The first question we have is, does undetectable really equal untransmittable? Yes. Yes. Now, we'll be having some follow-up chat about this in episodes to come, so make sure you keep tuning in and we will really delve deep into undetectable equals untransmittable, what that means for people living with HIV and what that means for people not living with HIV. Stay tuned and we will uh, pick that one up at a later date. Mm, With some great guests. We've got really great Mm. guests coming up and and also, obviously, um, our own personal experiences too. Exactly. Yeah, there's, there's some good stuff to talk about there. Very exciting. The next question is, how big of a threat is STI in NZ? Well, I mean, first of all, for those listeners who uh, may not know what STI stands for, that, that means sexually transmitted infection. And for those listeners who don't know what NZ means, that means New Zealand. <laughs> Amazing. Look, it's an educational podcast team. <laughs> um, in terms of threat, I, I probably wouldn't say... It's a threat, but it's definitely an issue that we need to be highly conscious of. Particularly Auckland has seen a bit of a syphilis rise, a rise in syphilis acquisition. And so, you know, there's there's a real important piece around contact tracing, around partner notification and ensuring that you are testing regularly for STI so that we can pick them up early, which means the treatment will have a higher rate of efficacy. And, and also, I guess, um, you know, if, if, if you are diagnosed with an STI and you get it, bef- you're treated before you sleep with five more people, that's five less people. Five who, less people. Who will, um, who will contract it. Exactly. Um, uh, so if you are getting your regular sexual health checkup and your doctor or your practice nurse notifies you that you have an STI, the best practice is to tell your people that you have been um, intimate with and ensure that they know so that they can go and get tested and treated. And we have some really useful tools to be able to help you do that. So if you head to our website, nhiv.org.nz, we actually have a tool that you can go on and generate your own text messages and things to help you tell your sexual partners that you have an STI in a really practical, easy way. So head to endinghiv.org.nz for that uh, little tool. That's brilliant. Having those kind of tools that are plain information will also help to reduce the stigma around things like that. You know, I I, I remember 
when I was sexually active before I was in a, a relationship, there was a real stigma around being the person who'd given someone else an STI. And so I guess, you know, just dispelling all of those things is, is a great way of, of making it less of a, a drama. Totally. a big deal. Yeah, that kind of normalizing aspect. Mm. I watched an amazing TED Talk once where the person was talking about STI acquisition and instead of you giving an STI you take an STI off somebody. Right. <laughs> because obviously sex is, you know, when sex is consensual, mm. um, you are entering into it on equal platforms and mm, mm. Um, that's that kind of piece around testing and the importance of testing so that you are, are aware mm. and you know and you have that empowerment. You can go into those encounters confidently. Absolutely. Um, fantastic. And I guess that the really big thing about people who are sexually active now and who are maybe taking PrEP, mm -hmm. if you're having sex with someone that you haven't had sex with before, you don't know anything about them, maybe in a sex on site venue mm -hmm. or a cruising area, use a condom. Totally. You know? Because I think there's a lot of misinformation around PrEP being a bit of a cover-all for everything. You know, yeah. I, I know that that's not something that that the foundation um, passes out as an information, but, you know, I, th I think a lot of people do secondhand think that, um, you know, well, I'm on PrEP, so that just covers me. Yeah, it's um, okay, I'm on PrEP. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that you can get totally. from syphilis all the way down to crabs. Yeah, I mean, that's true. <laughs> I mean, PrEP, But isn't covered by PrEP. Yeah. PrEP is an amazing tool at preventing HIV acquisition by 99%, but PrEP does not prevent other STIs. Mm. And the physical barriers that we use, such as condoms, mm. are basically the only thing that will present a physical barrier to acquisition of those other STIs. Mm. And, and, you know, if you're a PrEP user, fantastic. If you're a PrEP and a condom user, fantastic. Mm. You can still have an amazing time even mm. if you are a condom user. Totally. And I mean, the, the thing is, um, if you meet someone and you're both on PrEP, you're both undetectable, whatever, and you've been seeing each other for a little while, you both get tested, then sure, you know, you can take that piece of rubber away from between you. But um, yeah, I mean, in the meantime, just don't take the risk. Absolutely. And be empowered with those choices. Mm, Allow them mm. to be considered empowered choices for your own health mm. and your own well-being. And also don't carry the shame as well. I think that's a really mm. important thing. Mm. You know, um, most STIs are treatable. Completely. And um, yeah, everyone gets one at least once in their life, surely. And if you're lucky, twice. <laughs> 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 Just as long as you're getting tested and treated. Thanks for tuning in to our first episode of Sexual Transmission. Remember, this is a weekly release, so make sure to subscribe to stay up to date with the latest sexual transmission. Follow us over on Instagram to submit your questions at EndingHIVNZ. If you or someone you know wants to be a guest, let us know. And don't forget to check out our show notes for all the juicy links and resources. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. Bye.